Uh, on the book table, there are more. Grandma was right after all. If you're not done raising kids, be re-inspired. One day you may raise kids. All right. Wait, so who's read this book or some of this book yet? Is it worth it? Helpful? Encouraging. All right. Now, I hope you feel the same way about this book that's on the book table now. Just came out, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It is a really good book. You, I, I read it audible, so you, on my phone. And it's by Tony Ranke, and his perspective is not, let's become Amish and never drive an automobile. I mean, the world changes. And, and for me, and for many of us, uh, to have a smartphone is a huge overall blessing. For some, it can be an absolute curse. And we have to watch with any kind of technology how is Satan using that to hurt us? Or how is it being used in our lives to bless us? And he's got a very balanced and, and a robust theology in dealing with the very practical of that. So, it's back there on the book table. And Nathan will make sure when he walks back there. Does it address what? I didn't even hear you. The fans are... I don't, even, I don't even know what that is. I don't know. You and I are out of it, Serge. Clash, Clash Royale. Clash Royale? No, but I'll address it. Don't waste your life. Well, I guess in moderation, if you know you're going to play that, you know, for two hours in a week, then you're good to go. I don't know. <laughs> Of course you do. That's why I said two hours a week. You, you have to have vacation. You have to have downtimes every day. You have, to be, you have to have control of them so that they're blessings and not a curse. Wow, there's a sermon. All right. Now I await my sound man. Okay, if you would, please turn to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 6, I'll be reading Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired Word to us through the Apostle Paul. And so, Father, I ask for Your grace, the power of Your grace, to cause me to be faithful to this text. To cause me to teach what it says. To re-say it in different words. 
And I ask for all of us that Your Spirit cause our hearts to truly see what is clearly on the page and to love what we see and to be moved and changed and inspired and filled with Your Holy Spirit because of what we see to the glory of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The key to, to walking with Jesus in this world and against the forces, the power, demonic spirits, the very key to doing that is to constantly own up to your own weaknesses. That you're weak. That in yourself, you're helpless. You're hopeless. You're lost. You will not be able to stand against the enemy. In the kingdom of God, there is absolutely no room for egotism. No room for self-adulation of how strong I am. Peter had to learn it the hard way. He didn't seem to grasp what Jesus meant when he's sitting there and Jesus tells him and the other eleven, apart from me, you, Peter, can do nothing. He didn't get it. But in his own strong, type A personality, his self-esteem, he boasted, Jesus, if everyone else leaves you, I won't. And it was a grace that Jesus allowed him to go through the humility of the three denials. I don't know that man. Because ultimately, by God's grace, he learned to wait upon the power of God. To fight with God's spiritual armor and not his own. That's at the core of the Christian life. The same was true for the Apostle Paul when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord, Jesus, please take this messenger of Satan away from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you in this trial. For my power, Paul, is developed or made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul responds, And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities because when I am weak, then 
I am strong with the power of Christ. This text this morning in Ephesians 6, it is driving us to know our weaknesses in order to become dependent upon the strength of another. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we first cracked open, starting with verse 10 of this text, we saw that to have the mercy of God to come and to save your soul from the guilt of your sin and from the kingdom of darkness means that there is now a real peace. God is at peace with you in Jesus And there's a real joy. Though you don't see Him, you love Him, and you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory, and there is a war you have entered. A war with the enemy. Satan and the whole unseen demonic realm. That was last week. And so Paul writes to the early Christians in the first century and to us modern Christians in the 21st century these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We've been drafted into the army. And in verse 12, Paul lets us know exactly what he means, why we're drafted into the army, because here's the situation. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the Apostle Paul, he gives us our marching orders. As Christians, as the church. And so let's just move through it slowly. Beginning with verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of of His might. Now, that imperative verb, be strong, is a passive voice. Not, go ahead and strengthen yourself. Do some more pull-ups of your spirit. It is essentially saying, be recipients of strength that comes from outside of you. Be strengthened, is a better translation, be strengthened with power that's not your own. It comes from without. Specifically, be strengthened in the Lord. What do you mean in the Lord? I think he's driving at this. If If you are born again, You have been supernaturally raised with Christ and seated with Him. 
You are, as Paul says throughout Ephesians, you are in Christ. So he means to be strengthened in the sphere of the Lord. Or our strength comes from our supernatural union with the Lord Jesus. Be strengthened that way. This is how he says this in chapter 3, verse 16 of Ephesians. So that He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So to be strengthened in the Lord, it is to be strengthened with the power of Christ's might. Strength. He's talking about internal spiritual power. Like he wrote about in chapter 1. That you may know, here's Paul's prayer, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. The power that is according to the working of His great might. That very power that He used in raising Jesus from the dead. Be strengthened by Christ's mighty power. Verse 10. Then in verse 11, He tells us how to go about that. And why we need to go about it and be strengthened. Let's read it. How do we do it? Put on the whole armor of God. That's how. Why should we do that? So that you may be able to stand and not fall. To stand against the schemes of the devil. So the how is to actively dress yourselves every day with warfare armor. The whole armor of God. Now Paul's getting his analogy from the armor that Roman soldiers would wear. As he's writing this letter, he is in prison, he's in chains, he's have his own rented quarters, but he's always being guarded and they have different shifts and maybe Steve is, is guarding him now and they become friends and he can just look over at Steve as he's writing the letter and see the helmet and the breastplate and the sword and the shield and those particular shoes that they would wear. And he says, that's it. That's it. There's my analogy to make this transition to these believers to show them that there's a warfare in another realm. It's not physical. And that's what he's going to go on to do. Oh. We need the armor. Because Paul says, if you don't have it, you're going to get wiped out. If you didn't believe that, it doesn't make any sense to say, put on the whole armor of God so that... You can stand. That means you won't stand. You'll fall. 
We need to stand against the constant barrage and attacks of Satan. And this armor is armor that God provides for every believer. It's not physical armor, but it's armor for a spiritual battle. And therefore it requires spiritual, supernatural armor. And this is what he goes on to make clear in verse 12. Let me just flip verse 12 and go to 12 and go back to verse 11 and see his logic. He essentially is saying, because we are in a battle, whether you like it or not, because we battle against spiritual, demonic, evil, God-hating forces, therefore, we need to battle them with spiritual weapons in order to stand firm. And when he says, in order that you will stand, and he'll say it again later about standing firm, he means stand firm our ground. Don't be moved. Hold your position, army. Your position of the Gospel. Hold your position on the clarity of truth. His attacks are trying to get you to not hold your ground. See, that's what he goes on to say precisely, and we'll see it in the weeks to come, in verses 13 to 18. He says, here's the armor to stand against this. Stand with truth. Stand with righteousness. Stand with the Gospel of peace. Stand in your faith, trusting God's promises. Stand with the helmet on. In other words, stand with the clarity of your thought on what salvation is is fight with Scripture and with the Word of God as your sword and pray, 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 pray. Why? So that you will be able to stand. When Paul writes this, what's in his mind is mainly a defensive position. Not offensive. Okay, let's go battle! Let's get some plans! What are we going to do to go attack the enemy? It's not what he's talking about here. It is standing your ground. Because you are being invaded. He means hold your ground against what? The incoming schemes of the devil. That word schemes is the word methodeos. We, you can hear it, right? We get our English word methodeos, method. The methods or the plans or the scheming of the devil. I just want you to, for a moment, flip back to chapter 4. Paul used this word earlier, and hear how he uses it in Ephesians 4. 
verse 14. So that you may no longer be children. Now this is directly connected to the gospel and to truth and to teaching within the church. So that you will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness in deceitful... Now here comes the word. Schemes. And that's Paul's point here in chapter 6. Satan is behind crazy, strange, distracting doctrines away from purity of the Gospel. The clear teaching as the apostles have handed it down. From the clear teaching of who Christ is. What salvation is. And how it is lived out. Much of the battle that he says that we are in against the schemes and the strategies and the manipulations of the devil and his cohorts in the spiritual realm. Much of that battle is first about being aware of what he's trying to do. He clothes himself as an angel of light. Satan presents himself so often as nice. He, he is scheming constantly, looking for the goodwill of professing Christians. I'm going I'm to tap into that. The goodwill. They think they're pretty good now. I'm going I'm to go play with that. He knows how to push their buttons. Right now, the last poll on quote-unquote, whatever this term really means, right? Of evangelicals. Proclaiming, yes, I'm, I'm born again, believe in the Bible, believe in Christ and salvation. The latest poll is skyrocketed almost, I think, it, is it 50% or even above, that say, yes, we endorse same-sex marriage. Why? Well, because there's a reality of humanness and every real believer who holds to the truth of Scripture should love those practicing homosexuality or who deal with same-sex attractions as you would love anybody else or care about them and feel about them. Absolutely you should. But when that goes over to, oh, I don't, in our day and age now, you mean you're against endorsing same-sex marriage? Yes. You're a hater. You're a bigot. He's, Satan is behind this. And there are many who don't stand and why they feel good about themselves. I'm loving. And that's Satan in that context. He pushes the buttons in order to slowly, yet ever so clearly, divert the church away from the truth. He's so successful you could go throughout all of our evangelical churches in America this morning and take a poll and ask Christian after Christian coming out. 
whether they've been baptized 30 years ago, been in church for 25 years, and ask them, what does justification by faith alone mean? What does it mean to have Christ as your righteousness or Christ's righteousness accredited or imputed to you? And a large percentage won't have an answer because they're clueless. I don't mean, that's not clueless about some deep theology you've got to go to seminary for. It is foundational and central to who Jesus is and what the Gospel is and clearly plain in this very tiny book we call the New Testament. And they're clueless. Satan is scheming to have that be a reality. Or in the pool, you ask, you tell these evangelical churchgoers that God is holy, which means God is angry at sinners. He has perfect, holy wrath stored up for sinners. You tell them that? And they will fight you saying, No! God is love! As if those two things, His holiness and perfect justice and thus wrath, is somehow antithetical or mutually exclusive from God's love. Satan's schemes work. Tell them God killed Jesus, crushed Him on the cross through sinners. God was doing that by pouring out His Perfect wrath against sinners on Jesus. And many of them will look at you as if you just said 2 plus 2 equals 27. And they've been in church for decades. Satan loves the doctrine. God's not angry or judgmental against anyone. He loves Everyone unconditionally. He has nothing against sinners. Only against sin. And Satan's ambassadors for his deceptive religious doctrines are a whole bunch of us evangelicals. And they have no idea that in saying such things, they are actually denying what the cross of Jesus is all about. Satan is tricky. He's nice when he needs to be. And therefore, the Apostle Paul tells us to put on the mental in the spiritual armor of God so that we don't fall for Satan's strategies. But instead, we stand for truth, for the Gospel, 
for salvation against the schemes of the devil. So that you'll be able to stand. And then in verse 12, he gives the reason why we have to be armed in order to stand. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he says our struggle, it isn't against flesh and blood, meaning the battle is against non-material, non-physical beings. It's against spiritual beings of evil in another realm. Not the realm of matter you can cut up in a science lab. Spiritual realm. And the first two, he says, it's against rulers, it's against authorities, spiritual beings who are invisible to us. That first word, rulers, is the Greek word arche, which is a good translation because to lead or to be the first, arche, that's what it means, to lead. They're, They're leaders, they're leading someone else under them. The second word is the word exousia, which it means authority. It means you have the right to now make decisions and to act or something like that. Now, when these two words are used in the New Testament to refer to not demonic or unseen angelic type of hierarchy, but to refer to humans here, in the terrestrial, it's clearly referring to leaders, those in places of leadership, whether religiously or governmentally. For instance, Jesus said this in Luke 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the... Here's the two words. And they bring you before the rulers and the authorities. He doesn't mean demonic there. He just means the rulers and authorities over you. And so Paul uses these terms here to refer not to humans, but to fallen angels, as we saw last week. Which means he understands, because he uses the plural, rulers, authorities, that there are many such within that dark spiritual Realm. Many, if we just use our own lingo, captains or majors or colonels and generals and some type of hierarchy going on. Now, I just want you to hear how Paul, in other places, again, puts these two words together. Authorities and rulers and authorities. In, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he said this, And God, when He raised Christ from the dead, He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. 
In chapter 3, he writes about the Gospel of God putting together Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles in Christ, this great mystery. And he says, this is all so that through the church, us here on earth, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The Spirit realm. In Colossians 1, he says, For by Him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And in Colossians 2, Jesus, with His work on the cross, He disarmed. Took their their ability to harm, really, believers. Disarmed the rulers and authorities. And He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. And so, Paul says, our battle is against rulers and authorities. And then thirdly, we fight against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now, that, that word is cosmokrateros, which is two words that come together and make one. Cosmos, cosmos, right? Hear that word? We get our word world from, and krateros, which means power. World powers or world rulers. And he modifies it. Over this present darkness. Now, the scholar F.F. Bruce, who's long gone to be with the Lord, but he guesses here that, that Paul may be thinking of high-ranking fallen angels, such as the angel princes of Persia and Greece, that are referred to in the book of Daniel when Daniel prayed and a messenger, an archangel was sent to him, but it took him a while to get there and give Daniel the message. And this is what the angel says when he shows up in chapter 10 of Daniel. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Okay, that's F.F. Bruce's. Maybe. But the point is this. Whatever the correct precise designations for these different terms that Paul is using here. The reality is there is a great demonic realm and an enemy with a hierarchical chain of command. Satan, that's what the devil is, the schemes of the devil, 
world rulers or cosmic powers over all the spiritual forces of darkness and evil, rulers and authorities over them. And so this term, over this darkness, that's literally what it is, and present is probably good what he means. He means this darkness that we live in now, over this present darkness in this world we live in, there are cosmic powers working. It refers, when he says darkness, to the place of blindness to truth. Can't see him who is true. Satan is the essence of darkness. He is a liar, as Jesus says, and a liar from the beginning. And his children are liars because their father's a liar. Darkness is the place where light does not dwell. As we see in 1 John 1 5, this is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And that's why Paul, before King Agrippa, when he was in chains and he's in the courtroom, they let him speak, so he speaks, and he's retelling the Damascus Road experience and Jesus saving him and calling him to go preach to the Gentiles. Paul says these words. You've got to listen carefully because Paul's writing Ephesians. And he says this, Jesus said to me, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. How, Paul? He's going to preach the Gospel. From darkness is the power of Satan. And the only thing to release people from his dominion forever is the truth of the Gospel. From the power of Satan to the power of God. So Paul is saying with this term, these cosmic powers over this present darkness, he is saying it is the very purpose and the goal of demonic forces of darkness to keep people in the dark. To keep them from seeing the light, the truth, the Gospel. To have an aha moment. I see it. This is the greatest news. If you're a believer, has it ever happened to you? I can't believe Jesus died for me. doesn't want them to have that. And he works against it. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, and even as we preach the truth of the Gospel, if our Gospel is veiled, meaning they can't see it, they're blinded to it, he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world, Satan, 
has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There's only one reason if you have been moved from the kingdom of darkness and you truly see Jesus as your Savior. Only one reason. The Gospel came clear enough and God turned the light on. Because that's what Paul goes on to say right after that. To us believers though, for God, who said in the beginning when He created Let light shine out of darkness. He's the one who has shone, meaning shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves in the light. We find ourselves saved. We find ourselves believing. And that's why Paul writes... In Colossians 1.13. Christians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's Paul's theology. And that's why so much of Satan and cosmic powers and authorities and rulers and the whole demonic realm, so much of their work is tied to worldviews, to philosophies of this world in order to keep people blinded from the truth of salvation in Jesus He says they're not physical down here. They're in the heavenlies or heavenly places. Translate either way. It's one word in Greek. In other words, you can't see them, but they're behind the scenes. And their work extends to the regions below them, the terrestrial here on earth. As as Paul referred to, this realm earlier in Ephesians, the prince of the power of of the air all around you. They're at work. You're following them when you were in darkness. They're working. And their work is directly connected to false teachings. They're constantly through the centuries bubbling up within the church world. And then this final one, he says, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, what is he doing? Okay, is it a fourth thing? I don't maybe, but I lean toward, this is Paul's summary of the first three. Rulers and authorities, etc. Right? Let me read it again. He's just summing them up and Catching them with this last phrase. Against the, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic 
powers over this present darkness. In other words, against the spiritual forces of evil in the non-physical realm, the spirit realm, the heavenly places. So what is happening in the spirit realm is directly connected to time and space down here. Now, I want you to please try to follow me what I mean on this. In this letter, Paul has made it clear that believers are blessed with all spiritual blessings. Where? In the heavenly places. In the spirit realm, so to speak. He has made it clear that in new birth we have been raised up and somehow, not physical, seated with Christ where? In the heavenly places. And of course, in Ephesians he makes it clear, we're very physical and we live in this present evil world. So, there is the reality that we Believers, we both are existing here on earth and in the heavenlies where we're seated. Satan and his followers are also both on earth and in the heavenly places. Satan is called the God of this world. He's called the ruler of the realm of the air, the one who controls this evil world according to 1 John chapter 5. So, the battle, the battle we're in is played out in the spirit world and on earth. And it's played out between those who side with the devil and his fallen evil spirits and those who side with Christ and His angels. That's what He's driving at. That's our text. Jesus went to the cross. And it was at the cross where He won the war where He made it absolutely certain that the end, which is still not yet, is sure, undoubtable, and absolute. It's coming. And yet, during this time in this world, as those of us who by God's grace come to faith in Jesus through the hearing of the Gospel, the battle for truth, for light, against the forces of darkness and lies and evil, it continues on in the lives of each and every believer and each and every local church. It's like the cross was like D-Day in June 1944 when the Allies finally made it to the continent on the beaches of Normandy and France and through a lot of blood, got established. And now, it's only a matter of time.
The end was sure. Germany and the Nazis were doomed. But the battles, and even my dad had to finally get over there, and many others, and fight the battles through France and Belgium and into Germany. But everyone knew it's only a matter of time. The question of who's going to win this war was not up for grabs. And it's not up for grabs for believers. Christ has won the battle and therefore take up the whole armor of God in battle. Let me briefly read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He sees D-Day in Jesus' first coming. And now he's going to speak of V-E Day, victory in Europe, that hasn't yet come. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That hadn't happened yet when Paul wrote it. It hadn't happened yet. That's going to happen. For, he says this, he must, and he's doing this now, reign. He's reigning. Right now. And he must reign in this way until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we're in a battle. And Satan is real. Demonic forces are oh so real and at work. And they are crafty. Satan has had millennia. He's not God. He's a creature. He's finite. But I think he's honed some skills. Satan was there in Jerusalem when Paul and Barnabas, along with Silas, they go there to meet with Peter and James and John and to tell them, you guys have to speak up or shut up. Does Silas need to become a Jew in order to be saved by Jesus or not? He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. Satan was there. Paul lets us know that those who served him, though they wouldn't think of themselves that way, they were fighting for the truth. But they snuck in to spy out the liberty that the gospel gives us in Christ. He was there. Satan was in Nicaea in AD 325. Oh, he was there. Oh, he had his say concerning Jesus much higher than any other human being. But He is a creature. He was there in that battle and later at Chalcedon and forming the biblical view that Christ is uncreated. He is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. But He was there. Satan has been there through the Middle Ages and in Rome and in doctrine after doctrine coming forth as official that was hiding the Gospel more and more. He was at work. He's very skilled. 
He knows how to persuade church leaders, philosophers, theologians, psychologists of our day. Oh, He knows how to work. He was there working in the church hierarchy of Rome in the papacy when Martin Luther went on theological trial. He was there. He was there in the faculty rooms, the classrooms, the publishing houses of the universities of Germany back in the 1800s and the 1900s, spurring on the higher critics in their dismantling and denying of the truth of Scripture in the name of PhDs in theology. He was there working. He was working when, in the early 20th century to go get a degree in theology. Most from America had to go over to the continent of Europe. He was working when they would come back as unbelievers and say, well, what else am I going to do? It's my profession. And they become pastors of churches in the mainline denominations until decades later they just essentially all crumbled and are gospelless. Satan was working. See, one of his deadliest schemes has always been to be masquerading as agents of the gospel, agents of light and of righteousness. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 11. And he's referring and connecting it to human preachers. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is, it's no surprise if his human servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And so today, these agents of Satan appear with strange haircuts on TV and $8 million homes and $5,000 suits and luxury cars, all in the name of the Gospel. It works. I profit from it. All in the name of the false Gospel called the Prosperity Gospel. Satan... He's there in the conference rooms, seminary classes, book writing on how to make the gospel more palatable to the unbelievers in our culture. He's there. His stamp is all over the seeker-sensitive movement. And so in light of this present age, the reality of the great deceiver, and his army, Paul exhorts us, his believers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on, each of you, put on each particular piece of armor, the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against these schemes of the devil. Which means 
we must be serious about our joy and about our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and as and in the gospel that was delivered to us once and for all through the apostles and we cannot fight in our own strength we must be receiving someone else's real tangible spirit strength the lord's and so that's why the apostle paul then he goes on to unfold how to do this which we'll be coming to in the weeks to come but summarized here this is what he goes on to say you do this by putting on the whole armor of god which includes saturating yourself with the truth. Saturating yourself with holiness, righteousness. Saturating yourself with the Gospel of peace. By having strong faith, shield, meaning you look to and trust God's promises to you in Scripture. You do it by being well-versed in the doctrine of salvation as a helmet. By being filled with the Word of God, praying, praying, praying. That's how you stand firm. So stand, therefore. Father, that any of us believers throughout the centuries have stood, and many in horrific trials, where it would cost them their very life by being burned, or shot, or hacked too. It's only because of the strength with which You supply. The Spirit which You have given us. Your grace is beyond all the fleeting pleasures and deceptions of this world. May You make us even that much more serious of finding our happiness and joy in communion with You and in the hope of Your promises secured for us on D-Day of the cross to the glory of Jesus, our Savior and Your eternal Son. Amen.